0: The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation he provides for all who submit to him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss the way.
1: What's up, everybody? Thanks again for tuning into the Way BK podcast. Caleb and I are looking today at Acts chapter 8, and this is a cool chapter help me out with some elements of this that are important. Just to r- remind everybody what's been happening, a real moment of devastation happened. Mm-hmm. You remember last week from the pod that we talked about Stephen being murdered for the faith, unjust trial, people were angry, abusive, they kill him, and that wrecked the church. I and mean, It starts a season of persecution where people are getting dragged out of their homes, people are getting thrown in prison, etc., etc.
0: And... Now the church is scattering, you know. Uh, every what went what started as a church full of thousands of people, is now just the apostles, right. and everybody else is gone. Yeah. You know? So I mean, I mean,
1: it's funny because you start Acts, and you see this kingdom, of 120 people. It's nothing, mm-hmm. and then like you said, they start preaching the gospel of King Jesus, and thousands of people are becoming disciples. There, I mean, they're changing the city of Jerusalem, impacting at least in a really powerful way, and then now it's. In the text says at the beginning of chapter 8, it was only the apostles. Now, certainly their families would have been there. Maybe there were a couple other people right. hanging on. But you're probably looking at an even smaller group right. than the 120 that started the book of Acts. So you would think that's the end of the story. It's well, a, pretty, we devastating, had a good run.
0: pretty devastating Sunday service after, uh, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a great point.
1: Yeah. And what I think a lot of people groups or religious organizations or whatever facing this kind of persecution, facing this kind of, um, I guess, s- scattering or spreading out of their people, especially in a world that's not interconnected like ours. For us, it's like, oh yeah, if you have 50 people in 20 different cities, that's actually better than having 1,000 people in you know one place. But for them, that wasn't the case. They didn't have email and texting and video chat and all that stuff. So you would think this is the end. The apostles are kind of the bedrock of this thing. We're away from the apostles. It's over. But actually, Acts 8, shows a very different story. And rather than being a chapter of despair and hopelessness and this whole thing's over, it actually just is just a continuation of the story and it's the same kinds of things we've already seen. Right. And all of it is showing that the, the kingdom of God is not rooted in any group of people really. It's not certainly not rooted in a location. It's rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whenever we come to this chapter, we see several different lessons about what the gospel means through the lens of some of the characters that pop up here in chapter 8. So anything else? Uh, just overview before we start digging in. That's, that's where, by the way, if you're listening, that's kind of what we're going to do today, is we're just going to go through, Caleb and I both have come up with a list of some things that we learned from Acts chapter 8 about what the gospel means through the lens of some of these characters, and they can help us think about what the gospel means and how it should impact our lives. But uh, am I overlooking anything else as far as this big picture here in Acts chapter 8? I
0: think that's good. That's good.
1: All right, so I'm going to do the first one on my list here as far as what the gospel means. And uh, the first one I've got is that suffering is not the end of your story. The gospel means that your suffering is not the end of your story. So that goes to the point that was, we were just thinking about the church doesn't dissolve because it's persecution. They just go everywhere. Verse 4 says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, yeah, my friends are in jail. Maybe some of them are getting, I mean, maybe Stephen was my close friend or maybe he's the guy who would bring food to me on the weekends or whatever. He's dead. Well, people still need to know about the gospel. I'm not going to give up just because of this suffering. Even just being divided, I mean, so much of the beginning of Acts is about them all being together and all being together. Now they're not. I mean, there are Christians who maybe didn't have any other Christians now and they were going to be living on their own or just with a couple of others. And that would be a suffering. That would be a trial to be isolated like that. Or just refugees on the run, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, because that's one thing we're going to see is later in the book of Acts, well, the very next chapter, actually. This persecution wasn't just, let's drive them out of Jerusalem. They were hunting the Christians down wherever they went. Right. So that didn't stop anything. That didn't slow them down. It barely even, I know it had an impact. Obviously, it did. They mourned over Stephen, but they just kept moving after that. And it's so challenging for us because you lose a job, you deal with a bad breakup, you get hit financially, you have a health problem, something happens with your kid, you get betrayed by somebody close to you, um, you know something happens in your local community or in the country that's disturbing you, whatever kind of suffering you may face, and that, those are all just circumstantial things. That doesn't even account for, I stood up for what was right on the job, and now I have no chance of getting a promotion. I'm having to resist temptation to sexual sin. Um, I used to be an alcoholic, but now that I'm following Jesus, I mean, those are all trials of obeying Jesus. And sometimes it's easy to let those kinds of sufferings just dominate our view of ourselves and our view of our lives. But what we see from these people is when you believe that God came down and suffered alongside you, mm-hmm. and when you believe that he died and yet rose again and overcame... All those trials and all those suffering. Whenever you believe in that message, it gives you a power to be able to endure and overcome whatever suffering you may face. So that suffering doesn't have to be the end of your story.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I think um, you know the the first thing I thought when uh, when I look at Acts chapter eight is I think if Stephen was still here to speak, Stephen would be saying, "You meant this for evil." but God meant this for good. Great Um, question. In fact, um, that was the first thing I was thinking. The gospel means that what Satan does to try to destroy, what Satan means for evil, to try to destroy God's church, to destroy God's kingdom, God uses it for good. Um, If you remember back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus had said, um, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And what do we see happen right after these guys are... This great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem in verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul's ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging men and women off and committing them to prison. And then it says in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Mm-hmm. In fact, the first place they go is down to Samaria. This is, this is disciples... Who are not panicking because of their persecution? They're actually preaching more and more the gospel everywhere they go. And this is the story of the Bible, right? I mean, Stephen tells the story in his speech of Joseph, um, who was his brothers were jealous of him, sold him into into slavery in Egypt. This is back in Acts chapter seven. Um, Stephen is recounting the story. And, and yet God raised him up and made him a ruler and made him the deliverer of his family. They actually end up coming and being saved by that. And one of the things that Joseph told them when they showed up in, in, uh, in, in, G- in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 was, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I think that is exactly how Stephen ends the story. He tells them, hey, you guys are persecuting. You're doing just what your fathers did. You're persecuting the Messiah but Stephen's, Stephen's life and death is kind of an example of this, that what they meant for evil to try to crush the church and try to put an end to this um, Christian, you know, uh, crazy Christian kingdom that's rapidly spreading across the empire. Um, what they meant for evil, God, God just meant it for good. Actually, for God, this has always been his desire, that the Christians would scatter, that they would go out preaching the word, that they would share the gospel everywhere they went. And it's just a reminder of, uh, it, that that is true for every one of us, and it's true for us in the church and in the kingdom of God. Um, the sufferings, Paul will say in, in Romans 8 and verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed to us. And one of the reasons for that is, if you skip down to verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That is not to say that everything that happens to us is good. Right? There's a lot of terrible things that are happening here, right? Stephen's getting destroyed. Uh, people are getting put in prison. They're getting hurt. They're getting, Saul's going to go out breathing threats and murder at them everywhere he goes, um, trying to hunt him down. There's, it's not to say that these things that are happening are good, but God is able to work them all together for good. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the story of the book of Acts, it is that everything, every obstacle that Satan throws to try to hinder the church, the God, uh, the... The uh, the the people of God from spreading, God overcomes it, um, and God uses Satan's obstacles to actually uh, become bridges to new people and new places for the gospel to just keep on spreading.
1: Yeah, and the reason why these people live with that frame of mind, like all this bad stuff happens, and their response is, well, back in Acts one and verse eight, Jesus did say it would start yeah. in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. I guess now's a good time to go to Samaria, guys. We can't stay in <laughs> Jerusalem. Let's go. You know right. they, they didn't. Right. They didn't panic like you said. They just said, "Okay, let's go. Let's let's go with the plan. Let's let's do what the Lord says." But the reason was because their framework was exactly what you're saying. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's kind of the gospel summary that they preached. That's right. Like two twenty three, um, says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yep. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up. That's right, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible. In uh, three fourteen, yep. you denied the holy and righteous one. I asked for a murder to be granted, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. You did something bad. God meant it for good. Yep. chapter four, verse ten. I think is that right? Yeah. Yep. Chapter four, verse ten. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Whom you crucified, you meant it for evil. Whom God raised from the dead, yep. God meant it for good. And that's there's right. at least one more here in chapter 5 and verse 30, where he, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel right. and forgiveness of sins. So that's kind of the message in the city of Jerusalem. You killed him, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And since they saw that come true in the story of Jesus, they knew it was going to come come true in their story too. Right. Because if we're following Jesus, no matter what evil Satan may plot against us, God's going to overcome that, like he's always done.
0: And even on a smaller scale, they've seen it right now in Jerusalem. Remember when the apostles got arrested in chapter 4 and verse 3, and they put him in custody until the next day, it says, the next very next verse is verse 4, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about the 5,000. Right. So they've actually seen that this isn't just the gospel story of Jesus. Jesus is bringing them into this gospel story, and their life is going to be like Jesus. Just as Jesus was rejected, they're going to be rejected. Just as Jesus had evil done to them, they're going to have evil done to them. But God is going to overcome that evil, and God is going to use all of that evil that's happening to actually just push the gospel out more and more and accomplish his purpose. Yeah. And so I think as they, it's like you said, as they've seen it in Jesus, and now they've seen it in Jerusalem in their own lives, they, they're confident that, you know what, what happened here, God was faithful when Jesus died and he raised them up. Mm-hmm. God was faithful when we got persecuted and he released them from prison and, and, and their imprisonment didn't stop the progress of the gospel at all. So we should expect the same thing here just because Stephen got killed yeah, we're mourning, yeah, we're loudly lamenting that this is heartbreaking. But it's part of the way the gospel spreads. Through his death, life will come. And isn't that what we see? Because of Stephen's death, life comes to many of the Samaritans. Sure. And actually, even to some of the persecutors. Yeah, that's right. That's
1: right. Yeah. Tune
0: back in next week for that yeah. little teaser there.
1: Yeah, um and I think this is significant because dealing with suffering, dealing with evil is the biggest challenge we face as is I mean, a lot of what we try to do, whether that be uh, in our entertainment, in our recreation, in our politics, in our relationships, is to try to escape or to cope in some way with these uh, these evil things that happen around us. Mm-hmm. And of course, some religious ideologies are well have no feelings at all, suppress all your feelings. Nothing's good, nothing's bad, nothing makes me happy, nothing makes me sad. I'm just going to kind of exist, you know. And that's like this. Perfect tranquility. Well, that's not a terribly realistic way to live, nor is it the way God designs us to live. You're suppressing your humanity whenever you do that. The gospel doesn't teach you to suppress those feelings. Of course, other people are just go with your feelings, whatever your feelings are, uh satisfy them, you know. So if you're feeling sad, go get wasted. You know, Mm -hmm. or if you're feeling sexy, go have sex. You know, whatever it is, go do these things. Whereas the gospel is, no, 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 you keep on following God's plan. Because whatever evil things may be happening, those who submit themselves to God, they're going to find good in the end. Right. And that's what Jesus shows us ultimately, and then, of course, the church does. So this is a pretty radical way, but the most, uh, frankly, the most pragmatic way of actually dealing with suffering. It's a hard way. It's not mm-hmm. easy, but it's the, it's the right and best way to, to do it. Amen. Amen. All right, so we've got um, lesson number one about the, what the gospel means is that your suffering is not the end of your story. Uh, lesson number two, as you pointed out, things that people or that Satan may mean for evil, God can use that for good, and he will use that to accomplish good for those who love him. Uh, so what's what's your number two? That's, we've both given one thing from our list. What's, uh, what's the second thing you got on, uh, on your list from this chapter?
0: Well, turning our attention to this uh, second story, in, uh, in chapter 8 and verse 9, um, Philip goes down to Samaria, and one of the guys he encounters there is this guy named Simon who uh, was a magic man in the city, hmm. a magician. And, uh, and everybody thought he was a great guy until they saw real miracles yeah. um, being done by Philip. Uh, they, before that, they thought he was the power of God. I was like, um, more than just a great guy. They yeah. thought he was the guy. Yeah, he's the man. The God man. Um, but, uh, but then Philip teaches and shows them the real power of God, and people are submitting to Jesus as Lord. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continues on in Philip. but uh, quickly Simon then uh, is exposed for not having addressed the greed in his heart because spirit because Simon um, comes to see when the apostles come down and lay hands on their uh, disciples Simon comes to see that uh, that the spirit um, is laid on, is, is given through the laying on of hands. he tells the apostles, Hey, let me give you some money for that. I want to be able to do that. What you can do, that kind of power, having power to pass on and decide who gets to have these gifts. I want that too. Um, and because of that, uh, Peter rebukes him and says, may your silver perish with you. You thought you could obtain with the gift of God with money you have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart's not right before God. Verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And here's the point that I think we learn from this. The gospel means that baptism apart from repentance does not save me. Baptism apart from repentance does not save me. What I mean by that is this, the Bible actually says baptism now saves you. And when we read through the book of Acts, it's very clear that, that, that the way a person comes to be saved is in part by submitting to God, in, by dying to self, burying that old life, and being raised up to walk in Him through baptism, right? And every story we look at, we'll see another one in just a moment, um, people are getting baptized when they believe in Jesus. But baptism is only a part of that transformation. Baptism is like, the, in some ways, like the first step of repentance. It's a choice to die to self and to bury that old life and to become a totally different person. What you see with Simon is someone who is baptized, believed in Jesus, but at least at some point, and I don't know if he, I don't know if this was before or after he was baptized, at least at some point it seems, he kinda goes back to his old self, his old life, his greedy, um, you know, um, selfish, arrogant ways. And, uh, and this, and Peter actually says to him, I'm like, Hey, uh, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That does not sound like a saved person. Mm-hmm. That sounds like somebody who needs to repent or else perish. Uh, and the point I'm trying to make with this is it's important for us to remember that we are saved through believing in Jesus, but also through repentance and baptism mm-hmm. and really for a Christian. Uh, a disciple of Jesus, repentance is a lifestyle. It's not a one-time thing where I say, "Well, like, I'm sorry for my sins, and 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 now that I'm forgiven, now that I've been baptized, my sins are washed away, and I can go on and live however I want, and everything's gonna be good." No, baptism is not like a get-out-of-jail-free card where from now on, you know, uh, anytime I'm in trouble, I can just be released from Charge my problems. Charge it to my baptism yeah, card. Yeah, yeah, put it put it on the credit account, and everything's good. No. Baptism is the beginning of a transformation. And if we're not willing to undergo that transformation, then we're not actually real disciples. And we're, we, we may find that what started out as being one of God's people, God may eventually cut us off and say, you're no longer uh, one of my people. You're in the bond of iniquity. You're in the gall of bitterness. And you've been cut off from the Lord. And that's what Peter's concerned about with Simon. If he doesn't learn to repent, To actually give up his old self, his old mind, his old ways of thinking, his old ways of living and behaving. If he doesn't learn to give that up, uh, then he's going to be cut off from the Lord and from the Lord's people.
1: Yeah. So something you just said there as a point of clarification, because sometimes this comes up with this story. Are you saying that Simon never actually was saved? Or that... He was saved, and then he was in danger of losing his salvation, or even had lost his salvation after being baptized. That makes sense. Like, was it? Yeah, yeah. No, he never actually became a Christian. It was all a farce, anyways. Or was it? He became a Christian, a true disciple, and then lost that somewhere along the way afterward.
0: The way Luke presents the story, it seems like Simon becomes a disciple. He he he's he's, he's believe he believes in Jesus. He's baptized into Jesus. He's one of the Lord's people. His sins are forgiven. And now, uh, when the apostles come down and they're praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit, you would assume that Simon would have got a portion of that Holy Spirit too. Mm-hmm. It's not its not the Holy Spirit that Simon is wanting. It's the ability to pass on these gifts of the Spirit. You get a little, get um, little cash from it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe you can I make mean, some that, money. That's, out of it. that's <laughs> what he thought about it is,
1: uh, this Spirit thing, hey, you guys should be using that for economic gain. Maybe right. he thought about it for himself too. At least,
0: at least what he wants is the power that comes yeah, with that. Yes. Probably also, you're right, probably some, some sort of financial benefit. But but to, to clarify, I, I do believe that Simon became a disciple, and I do believe that he actually became one of the Lord's people. But it seems like because of his greed and because mm-hmm. he didn't address that greed within his heart, um, Satan kind of took him and, yep. and took a hold of him to the point where Peter says, um, you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. That seems like somebody who's lost his relationship with God's people and needs to repent so that he can be restored into the community of God's people again. Which is an
1: important concept a lot of people reject that notion. True. That someone can become a Christian and then lose that status before God through their sinfulness. Right. But man, all throughout the New Testament. I mean, this story, some might debate this story. I agree with you completely. I think that's good reasoning you just gave to all of us, but... When you read the New Testament, it is just clear over and over again there are warnings of don't go back to your old way or right. you have been cut cut off right right and the Christians you've been you've been severed from grace I mean this kind of stuff where you can lose your salvation and that comes back to your point of the necessity of ongoing repentance. Yeah. You need to be constantly orient, reorienting yourself back to God. Yeah. It's like when you get in the car and you get behind the wheel and you start driving well, you better keep your hands on the wheel. Otherwise, you're going to drift off and run yourself off the road and
0: yep. end up in the river. In uh, Hebrews ten twenty six, the writer says, if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That means there was at one time a sacrifice for sins for us, but there's no longer a sacrifice for sins for us anymore, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. He goes on to say, Anybody who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he'll deserve? Who's trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the thing. I mean, we saw this with Ananias and the Survivor too, right? Sometimes people think, well, in the, in the Old Testament, God was so severe, and now he's just so kind. Well, that's actually not true. Actually... God was severe in the Old Testament for those who disobeyed him and rebelled him. And that was when the law was given through angels, right. through his spirit. Now he's given it through his, through his only son, Jesus. How much more severe a thing is it to reject that word of grace and to insult the spirit of grace by saying, Oh yeah, I'll take this. I'll become saved. I'll be baptized into Christ. I believe in Jesus. I'm gonna be, And I'm just going to keep on living the same way I was before. No, if we go on sinning willfully there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Yeah,
1: yeah. As exceptional as the grace of God is because of the gospel, the demands of the gospel are just as exceptional. Right. And that's, that goes to your point of just the need to, to repent and keep on turning back to God all the time. Amen. All right, cool. So uh, so what does the gospel mean? The gospel means your suffering is not the end of your story. doesn't divine your story. Um, the gospel means that Whatever Satan and the world and bad thing, whatever evil things may happen, God can and will use those to lead to good for His people. Uh, and then, thirdly, here at this point, you're making out repentance has to be a lifestyle. Is that a pretty yeah. fair summary? It's not just baptism a, alone; b- doesn't yeah, right. save
0: uh, without repentance. Got it. Got it.
1: Got to be penitent before God. That, that kind of sort of goes along with something that that I saw. And that was that the gospel demands obedience, and I realize that is pretty similar to what you said. No surprise we're coming to a similar list here. But I'm thinking about the different people that were obedient and how hard it must have been. The disciples leaving Jerusalem where everything was good and nice. Now I know the argument can be made, well, they were getting persecuted. Well, yeah, they could have been a lot more quiet about their Christianity. They could have stopped preaching. That was actually the deal in chapter four and chapter five. Hey, they didn't say stop believing in Jesus. They said stop preaching. Mm -hmm. But they couldn't stop preaching and so if they were going to obey Jesus, they said, well, I guess we're going to change our zip code, and they go somewhere else. Right. But they also obey Jesus in that they go to a place that most Jews would not have been comfortable being at all. The Samaritans, in I know there was always a discomfort between Jews and just the nations generally, but the Samaritans were kind of distant cousins of the Jews, and so in that way there was a lot more animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans than even like Jews and Romans or whatever, but here these Jewish believers in Jesus go to the city of Samaria, at least Philip does, he goes to the city of Samaria and preaches to them, and then in verse 25, you see that the that Peter and John are doing the same, well first off, Peter and John go to Samaria, and then they go to the other villages of the Samaritans, preaching the word. So this wasn't just a... Uh, I don't know. A sort of. Ah, I guess we got to obey, so we'll do it kind of begrudgingly. There's an eagerness in their obedience mm-hmm. of going to people that socially, religiously, ethnically, historically, they've been trained to hate. Right. They say, "Well, Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus told us to preach the gospel to all nations. So I guess that means we're going to do this. Right. And not even in a begrudging way, but in an eager way. Um, I mean, you see the people in Samaria. That's compelling because as much as the Jews wouldn't want to be with the Samaritans, that goes two ways. So the Samaritans, who would have been trained to hate and look with contempt on the Jews, the Samaritans welcome these Jewish preacher guys and embrace them and believe. And I mean, it's it's interesting to me. I, I'm not, I don't want to make too much out of this, but in Jerusalem, there are all these numeric uh, metrics that are given, right? It's this many thousand, this many thousand. Mm-hmm. In Samaria, there's no number given, but the way it's described... In verse um, 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention. In Jerusalem, we had this fractured notion. There were hundreds of thousands of people at the temple on Pentecost. 3,000 believed. That's good, but it was only 3,000. There were lots more Jews there. So you have this picture of a fractured society. And And I know it doesn't mean that every single person in Samaria believed. But it sure sounds like a great majority of people believed, even when you come down to verse 8, where it says, so there was much joy in that city, not just in one location or amongst a few. Anyway, you see the obedience among many of these Samaritans who would be predisposed to reject a Jewish Savior, a Jewish Messiah. Like, they wouldn't even want to believe in that at all. And yet, they embrace it. Um, Even, uh, what's his face? Simon, right? While Simon does a terrible thing in asking for the power to administer the the gifts of the Spirit to other people like the apostles. Once Peter rebukes him, Simon's response is in verse 24, pray for me to the Lord, nothing of what you have said will come upon me. That's actually, while he needed to change a lot, you see a, a submission and an obedience where whenever Peter hits him with this commandment, he embraces that. And then, I guess two more people that model this kind of obedience one is Philip. I mean, he's arguably the most successful preacher of the Gospel to date. Mm-hmm. Here he's in this foreign city. Everybody's believing. He's changing the world here. This is great stuff. And, you know, certainly there must have been much a lot of uh, other things. It wasn't just like he was preaching people were even repenting and baptizing. Boom! Like, he's having to teach people the way of the Lord and all this stuff. And then an angel of the Lord comes and says, hey, leave. Okay. What city am I going to next? Nope, not a city. Go to the desert. Wait, might like just is there like a little commune in the desert? Am I going to a Essene community or something? No, no, no. You're going to a desert road. What? That's about it. Why, why would I do that? You know? Now of course like there was a reason for that, but he just does it. And that's right. what's fascinating. There's no response. There's no and I don't know, maybe he questioned it, but it's not recorded. Right. He just goes. And then one more, the man that he meets on the road, a man who is powerful, he's got influence, he's a, a court official in the, the kingdom of Ethiopia. He's seeking the Lord, and whenever he hears the gospel from this rando who met him on the desert road, who just hopped up in his chariot and started preaching to him, that man says, well, what holds me back from being baptized? He doesn't even have to get told to obey. Right. He asks, can right. I obey? Right. Can I obey the Lord? So I just think this chapter is filled with examples. That's kind of an offshoot of your point about baptismal repentance is, is pretty much useless. Uh, but hearing the gospel without obeying the gospel... Is also useless. Of that's course, right. a lot of people think of faith in terms of, oh, you just feel something or you think something. Here we see the gospel demands obedience.
0: Yeah. Or we'll say things like, you know, come as you are. You know. Sure. Which is true. Yeah. Um. But you can come as you are, but you can't stay as you are. Right. You know, and that's what you're seeing. You're seeing in this book. You're seeing people who did come as they were, but their lives are radically transformed. They don't stay as they were. Um. They become t- completely different people. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be to be a follower of Jesus means that we are going to give up the corruption of this world and the lust and the selfishness and the pride and all the, all the evil within us. And we're going to allow God, through His grace and power, to begin working on us to renew us and make us into His image again, to renew us into what God intended us to be. And so that's a lifelong process. That's a long process. Um... But it's a process that we are entering into. If I choose to become a disciple of Jesus, I'm not just calling Jesus Lord. I'm making Him Lord of my life. He's my Lord, and He's my God, and He's going to reign in my heart, and He's going to work on me and make me what He wants me to be. Right, right, no doubt. Let
1: me get my third one, and then uh, you give your third one. The third one I see in this chapter as far as what the gospel means, there's probably tons more, obviously, than what we're coming up with. But another big lesson I see is that the gospel reframes your identity. Amen. So Philip in Acts 6 is a guy who's basically organizing a soup kitchen, pretty much. I mean, in right. our in our vernacular at least, right? He's helping care for needy widows. Great work. But in Acts 8, he's a powerful preacher. Which he's both of those things because of the gospel. A lot of times people would say, No, no, I'm I'm not a I'm not a talker, I'm just a doer. Right. Or I'm a talker. I'm not going to help. Right. But the gospel had reframed Philip to, I'm whatever the Lord wants me to be. Right. Wherever the Lord wants me to go, I'm a servant. And so he's, his identity is reframed. Um, these Jerusalem Christians are not really Jerusalem Christians. They're reframed and they become global Christians because of the gospel. Right. These Samaritans, they kind of stop being Samaritans. Because right. no self-respecting Samaritan would find joy in associating themselves with this Jewish, Jewish movement. Sect, yeah. But... These people did. They found great joy in the gospel because it reframed their identity. Um, People who are powerful, like Simon, become—I mean, not so powerful. Yeah, he's very like when i I know he's probably not. But in my head, when I read this chapter, he's wimpish. He's balding. He's Mm -hmm. not impressive. He has a—he like stammering uh, and—but I mean, that's not what it was. Because the crowds knew him as the great power of God. So certainly, he would have been impressive and strong and powerful and admirable and all that, and yet because of the gospel he's humbled. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Peter and John, the lowly fisherman guys from the backwoods of Galilee, they're these power like they show up in the pictures, they show up in a town and people are like, Oh, you guys are here, finally we've been waiting right. on you. And they're giving powers out and they're rebuking people and then they're just going on tour and all So there's this reversal. And maybe the the greatest example of that is that guy we we're talking about, the Ethiopian, who Was a foreigner, like the most foreign of foreigners that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. Right. He's alone, which is, I think, a a striking moment that God chose. God didn't choose to send Philip to the Ethiopian whenever he was in the middle of his work day with dozens of people asking him questions as he's a treasurer in this powerful kingdom. God chose to send Philip to him when he was alone and certainly who had other people with him. But the picture is here's this guy who's all alone, which makes sense because he's a eunuch. Right. He would have been castrated a in freak. order to do it. He's a freak, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's not—he's not really a man because he can't have children and all this kind of stuff because of the castration in order to allow him to work in his powerful position. But to work in this powerful position in the world, he's lost mm-hmm. an identity. Of course, he's not a woman for sure. He's just this sort of lost individual,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I think. Um, whenever you tie this back to prophecies like Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 56 and other passages where the promise of the gospel is, hey, you who are a widow and you've borne no children, rejoice. You're going to have more children than the woman who's had tons of kids. Get a big tent because you're going to have all kinds of kids coming into your home. Well, that's an image of I'm going to reframe your identity if you believe in the gospel. You who are afflicted and storm tossed, weep no more because I'm going to make you, I'm going to Make a battlement of rubies. I'm going to make your walls like diamonds. And I'm going to, no weapon in this fashion against you will stand. Don't let the eunuch say, Isaiah 56, I'm a dry tree. I'm useless. I'm just, I'm firewood. No, no, no. The eunuchs who call on my name, the eunuchs who, in this context, receive the gospel of Christ, you're going to be elevated. You're going to have an everlasting name. You're not going to be forgotten or overlooked. You're going to be something important. So the gospel does both of those. If I thought I was a big shot, the gospel humbles me and shows me that I'm a sinner just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And if I feel like I'm useless and worthless and um, I don't even have a real clear sexual identity and I don't know where I fit in the world and I don't have anybody in my corner and all this kind of stuff, you're exalted so that this man in verse 39, after he's baptized, the Spirit of the Lord carried even Philip away. So here's this eunuch who has nobody except the Lord. And because of that, the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Uh, And so I I just think that's a really, really powerful thing about this chapter, is the reframing of identity and how it really
0: transforms the way people think about themselves. And God is giving, like, a new name, a new identity to... uh, And there's no place to see that better than with the eunuch. I mean, he has everything against him, right? He's a foreigner. Mm -hmm. If you're a foreigner... The whole thing about him going to Jerusalem is puzzling to me, because... Like he, I mean, this guy is coming all the way from Africa up to Israel to go and worship at the temple. I don't know if this is his first trip or not. I mean, I'm just speculating a little bit here. But when he gets there, what's he going to find out? Well, he's a foreigner. He's a foreigner. Um, They have a sign uh, outside the court of the Gentiles that says, No foreigner enters here except on penalty of death. Not only that, he's a eunuch. According to Deuteronomy 23, a eunuch was not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. So I, I don't if I'm here so even if
1: he was a Jewish convert there would have been limitations like like he could have been a foreigner who converted had been a proselyte and had become a Jew and believed obviously he was seeking God according to the, the scriptures. he knew he's, something about yeah, that. yeah right? but like you're saying even if he had been converted and was a proselyte to Judaism he's an outsider. he still had limitations and he still would have been an outsider socially and religiously and ethnically and all that
0: yeah and now he's on the way back home and he's reading from Isaiah and he's like hey how... Uh, can you tell me who who this guy talking about? And and Philip tells him he's talking about Jesus. But what if, I mean, all of that has got to be you know God at work, right? I mean the fact that he's reading Isaiah, you just keep reading a little further and you start to see, wow, I'm going to give Eunice something better than uh, better than sons and daughters. Right. I'm going to give them an everlasting name. I'm going to make them. Isaiah 56 says. I mean it's just God is taking someone. Who would have been felt like they were always on the outside, never a part of a family, never a part of a community, Um, and and God is taking that man and He's making him part of His family. He's giving him a completely new name, a completely new identity, and a new life. Um, Which to my uh, my my uh, last one that I'll share on this that I think relates a little bit to what you're saying here. Is that I just want to stress again? We've talked about this a little bit, even today, um, that it is it is the Spirit of God who is taking the gospel to all. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Philip who's like, "Hey, let's go down to Africa and preach the word." It it is the Spirit's will. The will of God is that the gospel would go to all, and I, I just think that's relevant. You know, it's 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 the angel of the Lord who tells Philip to go down to. Uh, to, um, to this desert road. And then when he gets there, it's the spirit who says to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Um, and it, I, I mean, that's even weird. Like, I don't know, if, is the chariot running, going, and, and Philip's running by and just having this conversation while right, they're right. running? Or at some point it stops and uh, he's able to go up in the chariot. Um, but then it's the spirit that, uh, that carries him away, right? Uh, right? As well, and leads him on to the next place where he's doing the work of God. Uh, and, and it I, goes
1: back to in Samaria when Philip first showed up. Right. The reason why people believed the gospel is because the signs that the Spirit was working to confirm right. the
0: message. So. That's right. That's exactly right. And so, you know, what the book of Acts is showing us is that God's plan from the beginning of time has always been to unite the nations and to bring the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I think that's important because... Uh, you know, it's so easy for us to get up in like tra- caught up in like tribalism and all kinds, of, or eth- you know, our own ethnicity, or our own race, or whatever. Um, I've heard people in Brooklyn uh, a lot will say things like, "Well, Christianity is a white man's religion," or something like that. Well, this story reminds us that, at least according to the written word, we know about Christians being in Africa before we know about Christians being in Europe. Um, You know, God's God's plan was that the gospel would never be constrained to one region or one place. And this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique is um, most world religions, most widespread world religions are more or less constrained, the vast majority of the population, uh, following those religions is in one geographic area. If you think about Islam, you know, like 90% of Muslims are in the Middle, are, are in the middle East or in uh, West Africa, that region of the world. Um, you know, you think about Hinduism, uh, almost, I think it's well over 90% are, are in India uh, of, of Hindus around the world. Um, and you think about all the different religions of the world, they're kind of constrained, uh, but Christianity doesn't have a home. There's never been like one place where this is where the Christians live, you know, and even while people will talk about, well, Christianity is kind of uh, decreasing in certain parts of the United States or in um, the Western world. Well, it's rapidly increasing in Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it's never been one particular mm-hmm. area. And, and that's by design. God has always, it has always been God's will that the gospel would go to all nations, that that people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be together worshiping him. And so it's beautiful to see that here, you see the Spirit at work, just fulfilling that plan, taking the gospel to Samaria, taking the gospel to the to, to the surrounding regions, and now taking the gospel even far beyond Samaria, even to another continent.
1: And that ties all the way back to what the gospel is, which is that Jesus died, he was raised, and now he's exalted to the throne of heaven. Amen. And Jesus said, all authority is given to me of heaven and on earth, Go, therefore, because right. I have a throne in heaven and I'm over all right. of heaven and all of earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations because I'm king of heaven and earth. I'm lord of the world, some people say. "Yeah, right. Jesus is at the top of it. That's why the book of Acts and all throughout the New Testament, there's so much emphasis given to Jesus' exaltation to the throne. Right. And if we miss that piece of the gospel, then you just make Jesus into a personal Jesus which then means Jesus for me and maybe my friends or people who are like me. If you if you forget about the enthronement of Jesus, right. but if you remember his exaltation to the throne, then that ensures that, hey, we recognize this is for everyone and there's a responsibility for all people to be obedient and for those who are disciples to preach the gospel to all nations.
0: That's exactly right. Amen.
1: All right, so here's what we got out of Acts 8. Help me re or reclarify if I'm forgetting anything. Um, the gospel means that your suffering is not the end of your story. Jesus died and rose. He'll raise you up, whatever suffering you go through. And actually, number two, whenever evil things happen, God doesn't want those things to happen, but God will and has used evil to accomplish his good purposes. We said most of all in mm-hmm. Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, let's see. Number three, baptism without repentance doesn't save you. If you think doing a religious ritual on its own is going to mean anything, but you're not interested in really changing, it's not going to make a bit of difference. And related to that, number four, the gospel demands obedience. Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. If you don't obey him, you can't expect to be a part of his kingdom. Uh, Number five, the gospel reshapes and reforms your identity. If you think you're somebody big and wonderful and great because of your ethnicity or your finances or your political position, The gospel is going to wake you up to realize you're a sinner like everybody else. On the other hand, if you feel like you're an outcast and worthless and unloved and all that stuff, you'll see in the gospel that you're more loved than you could ever imagine. The gospel reframes your identity. And then this last point you brought up is that it's the will of God, the will of the Spirit of God, the work of the Spirit to take the gospel to all nations. Amen. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Read this chapter for yourself and think about what the gospel meant to these people and come with some more stuff and let us know. Send us an email or comment on our Facebook page or uh, reach out to us in some way, shape, or form. Let us know what you're learning. Also, if you have questions about the gospel, we talked about some, I guess, existential lifestyle things. We've also talked about some doctrinal points regarding how the gospel works in people's lives. You may have some questions. You may be sitting there wanting to know more about the actual message of the gospel. You may have some questions about did Jesus really die? Did he really raise? What does it mean for him to be king? How does the spirit work? What's the deal with baptism? How does repentance look in my life? I don't know. Whatever question you might have, feel free to reach out. We're here to help and we'd be happy to talk to you and walk with you as you're trying to seek the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The aim of The
0: Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.